everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. I'm your host, Alejandra Quiroz. Gracias por sintonizarnos una vez más. So today we're talking with Gustavo Guerra Vasquez. He's a Guatemalan raised in Los Angeles, California. He's a poet and he has a consulting organization for businesses. I want to thank Gustavo uh, for being with us today. And I know that he wants to start by sharing one of his poems. So thank you, Gustavo. Thank you, Alejandra. Um, so I usually do this poem where I haven't read before. So it's kind of like an introduction. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's about my name. So, Gustavo Adolfo, two names, no hyphen. Guerra Vasquez, two last names, no hyphen. I don't ascribe to the notion of a hyphen because while a hyphen is sometimes used to join, it can also be used to say, get back and stay back. I am a Guatemalangelino, no hyphen. Because after crossing a hyphen on Mother Earth, this Guatemalan began a process of Californization, Pico Union style. And while resisting becoming another lost soul in Los Angeles, I migrated north once more, but only found the golden gate that wasn't meant for me. Or was it just an entrance to a gilded cage? Still searching for America, I went back to Guatebuena, which back then was Guatepeor, only to find the bloodthirsty dictators running the show. So I went next door looking for salvation to El Salvador, only to find the bloodthirsty compadres also running the show. I have been to the depths of Honduras and the head of the continent, which, in which Chile is called Aji, and found a few from Central America who were looking and looking just like me. And so you see me here tonight on top of this whole hyphen that I'm always trying to erase seeking as a human to erase, seeking as a human to improve all my relations in every single place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a beautiful poem. Thank you. Thank you. And you know, I, I feel like by sharing the poem, we can know like your story, migration, and like going to other countries. So thank you so much. And, you know, I feel like you did share within the poem, we understand about how I was growing up in Guatemala and like your migration here. But if you can share just a little bit of how was your experience growing up in Guatemala and moving to the United States? Sure. So <clears throat> I was born in Guatemala in 1973 and uh, my family, my nuclear family uh, lived together up until 1981, which is when my father migrated to the United States without papers. He did that um, because my mother arranged for it. Uh, then she followed soon after that. And so I had a, a, a very good life in terms of my extended family. I had cousins, aunts, uncles who were really close to me, who I consider to be, you know, basically like brothers and sisters, but my parents didn't see a future for themselves there. And my mother decided that we were going to move. And so she helped my father come here first. Then she came after him, both of them without papers. And then in 1982, at the age of eight, I came with uh, a Coyota. Basically, my mother paid a lady 
to bring me here without documents. So mm -hmm. it was a big uh, shock to have my parents leave. And in some ways, I kind of had to fend for myself because um, my grandmother was not the most caring mm -hmm. person. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was glad when my, my mother sent for me. So, mm -hmm. so you asked me, that was, that's what it was like living in Guatemala. I don't know if you wanted me to add something else. Oh, no, 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 that, that, that's fine. Um, yeah. Cause I was going to ask you, like, you know, you said that you were born in 1973. So like my, the first thing that comes to my mind is that you were over there during all of the war period. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as someone who, you know, like I was born in 1997, like for mm -hmm. me, that is on like the history books, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. but for you, that was, that was, that was real life. You know, like, yeah. I don't know how was the experience. I know that in the cases of Guatemala and Salvador, some areas were more affected than others, but it was still under the same, you know, type of government type of atrocities. Um, mm -hmm. So had one moving here and of course like now you're here with your parents and maybe if if the you know if how you explain how your mom my grandma maybe not be the most caring but i feel that once you come here now you have like the type of you know your your family so how was that reunion of coming here after living during those years because i can only imagine um in get, coming here and living with your parents well, so let me back up and go into like what it was like growing up over there under mm -hmm. the regimes that they had, right? So mm -hmm. I was a little kid, so I didn't see a lot yeah. of the stuff, but I would hear stuff. Um, my aunt used to work for the court system and she was placed in the Quiche region. And mm -hmm. my family would talk about how la situación, that's kind of the way that people use the euphemism, mm -hmm. right? La situación was not very good in El Quiche, and so they would worry about her. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the other, on the other, that's on my father's side. And then on my mother's side of the family, um, I had an uncle who was a, a union organizer. He was a courier mm -hmm. for the banks. So I would mm -hmm. hear my grandmother and my mother talk about El Sindicato as if it was a bad thing, like very hush hush, right? Mm -hmm. And my mother, my father, and I came for economic reasons, mm -hmm. but my uncle soon followed because he was threatened. Uh, literally, people called him and said that they were going to kill him if he didn't stop doing what he was doing. So he mm -hmm. followed us and came to LA at first, then he moved to Houston and all that. But um, so, so the war, I think in Guatemala, for a little kid, right, like me, mm -hmm. um, because I was in the capital, it didn't feel as present as it felt mm -hmm. for the Maya communities that were basically undergoing genocide, right? Um, they literally had to leave and flee because they were going to get killed. Mm -hmm. But it was there, you know, and both mm -hmm. sides of my family, I would hear about it. I didn't know much. You know, I grew up thinking sindicato was a bad word because of the way my mother and my grandmother would say it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's up until now that I'm talking about, you know, the way that my family mm -hmm. kind of dealt with the war, right? Um, and then coming to L.A., uh, obviously, it was a good thing to be reunited with my parents because mm -hmm. my nuclear family, well, the three of us, my, my brother mm -hmm. stayed behind because he was too young. The lady would not bring okay. him because he was two years old. And my, my mother mm -hmm. suffered for that. She cried. She would mm -hmm. cry. And 
And I would tell her, you know, that my grandmother loved him and she took, would take care of him. And it was kind of a, a, you know, a benevolent lie because my grandmother was abusive. And, uh, you know, I would have to tell my mother that because she would suffer over his not being with us. Right. Mm-hmm. So in a way, um, I was glad to be with my parents again, but at the same time, I missed my cousins. We were pretty much the only family that we had here. Mm-hmm. So that was also very traumatic because all the cousins that were like brothers and sisters to me, all the aunts and uncles, I used to spend mm-hmm. like weeks at my cousin's house because I was mm-hmm. going to school near their house. And so in mm-hmm. a way, it was a real rupture of my extended family to be mm-hmm. with my immediate family. And even within my immediate family, we weren't all together. Now, yeah. we were very fortunate because my mother hustled and managed to get a sponsor. So, you know, we were able to get a green card relatively mm-hmm. soon after I got here. Um, mm-hmm. And my brother and all three of us were reunited. Um, but mm-hmm. that family, you know, system with the extended mm-hmm. family was not there. Um, and, you know, there were obviously great things about being here, but that was one of mm-hmm. the drawbacks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you touched on a very important point of like, you know, we often talk about immediate family, you know, like mom, dad, brother or sister. And what about like extended family? And I think that uh, I can relate with you about being so attached to my to cousins, like my extended family is like, like I consider more close than extended. You know, especially mm-hmm. more from my mom's side than my dad's side. From my dad's side, it's a little bit more complicated just because they're more here in the United States and I haven't grew up with them. But I have a cousin that is like my sister. So I I feel like, you know, once and it's, it's, it's something that happens with migration. And I feel like when we talk about migration and about the family reunion what about like those extended, like, you know, you said cousins, uncles, tias, tios, and like how you tend to feel like, like it's something is missing because now like the only connection that you have close here in the United States is your immediate family, you know, like your mom, your dad, or, or your brother, your sister. And now you are outside of the world and you're trying to make friends, but you know, um, those friends are never going to be compared to what it is to have a cousin that is has compared closer to a sister or brother. And I think that um, I, we, when we talk about migration, we mostly focus on like the close family. And I mean that, yeah, this is, is important and it's nice to have that support. And like you said, you know, um, you your mom suffered. And like at one point you were not all together. Once, you know, your mom managed to have the sponsorship and bring your brother with you it's like okay now we're together but at the same time like you don't have that other type of support what it's like your cousin your uncles your your ds and um so like bringing that connection of like okay you're missing that other side of your family while you were being here in the united states how was your experience as a central american because there's one thing of you know like we all as an immigrant, this one experience, and like as a Central American immigrant, I feel like it's that's more of what is the experience to live here in the United States. Yeah, so I'm I'm part of that generation that came in the early '80s, right? So mm-hmm. um, a lot of folks were coming because of the war, and I settled in. Well, I didn't settle. My parents settled in LA, mm-hmm. um, 
we lived in Koreatown first uh, in a big apartment building that had Mexicans and Hondureños, Hondureñas, Salvadoreños, Salvadoreñas, and uh, Puerto Ricanos, Puerto Ricanas. And, and that's really when I became a lot more conscientious of nation, right? I mean, I knew mm-hmm. in Guatemala, like, for example, you know, you, you learn about flags and nationality mm-hmm. over there, but but it was here in L.A. when I really learned about, like, nationalism and nation um, and and then race, right? I mean, over there, you learn about racism because we learn that stuff yeah. when it comes to indigenous and black folks. Um, mm-hmm. But literally, I was at a school where, you know, you had Vietnamese refugees, you had Korean refugees, you had Mexican uh, folks, you had... I mean, my first best friend was my Argentinian interpreter who was a classmate, right? Um, mm. And then aside from him, there was like the Salvadoran girl that used to interpret for me, even though I was in mm-hmm. ESL classes and all that. Uh, so so I think that that um, was when I really realized, you know, what it means to come from a country, if we want to call it mm-hmm. that, right? I remember yeah. my mom told me, oh, le tengo un amigo que es de Cuba. I didn't know where the heck Cuba was. His parents were from Goa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I have this other poem that talks about nationality and flags and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. and it was in middle school and high school that I learned about rivalries, some internal rivalries between like Salvadorans and Guatemalans, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's also the time when Mara Salvatrucha was starting out. It was barely mm-hmm. getting going. Um, and I actually mm-hmm. published something about, um, you know, the folks who were, were deported back to Central America. But um, but yeah, that's that was when I learned about what it meant to be a, a Central American immigrant. And, and mm-hmm. we also obviously came into spaces that had a lot of Mexican folks. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of resentment on the part of a lot of Central Americans because coming through Mexico, we suffered, mm-hmm. you know. Like mm-hmm. the immigration officer from LDF, it took my food money and the lady who was bringing me didn't give me food for like till we got to Tijuana because she didn't have enough money to give us food. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the ESL classes at Belmont High School, which is where mm-hmm. a lot of folks were in school by then, I wasn't in ESL, but I hear stories about how a lot of the students who came when they were older, who were teenagers would basically start arguing with with folks from Mexico because they felt resentment over the way they were treated on the way here, right? And um, mm-hmm. and that's what it played out in terms of gangs and stuff like that. A lot of it had to do mm-hmm. with, you know, discrimination, targeting of people because they were from another country. Um, and some folks formed it for self-protection and all that. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean... We've had a lot of great allies. We've had a lot of great Mm -hmm. folks who have helped us out along the way. But I think that the experience for Central Americans, at least the way that I lived it, was that that's when I learned about nationalism. And, you know, there are times when we would actually like fist fight over a country. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, it was um, also a time when you had some... Uh, folks who weren't very supportive of us. We had a lot of folks who were very nice, uh, a lot of Mexican, Chicano, Chicana folks who were very mm-hmm. nice to us. But then you also had some who were not very nice to us. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was part of the problem that, that we saw coming into L.A. 
Yeah, yeah. And like, if you know, what I know when you said like, once you come here, um, that's when you realize about nationality. I think I, I can understand you because like, when I moved here, I was 14. I was 2011. And I, I mean, I knew the quote unquote, you know, like Latino, Latina, but like, I have always identified as, you know, Hondureña, right? Like that was, you know, that was my identification. Coming here and having to be under this category of like Latino. And like, I never understood why it was so important to every single time I had to put it into like papers and stuff like that. And I I thought when I got here that the la rivalidad between Centroamericanos and Mexican was because of soccer. And I used to say that so many times. Like Oh, yes, yeah, because, you know, because of soccer. I'm, I'm a huge soccer fan. So I was like, oh, it's because of soccer. And I used to have an uncle uh, was like my aunt's, you know, boyfriend. He was Mexican. And the, La Rivalidad between him and I was just because of soccer, not because of nationality. But once you come here and realize how there's more deeper things, like you said, you know, like people actually remember things that they went through in Mexico or, for example, like um, the the way people just pick on you just because of the accent of certain words or certain foods. Um, and it's like, okay, this, this type of like, you know, rivalidad inside a classroom is more complex than what we can think about when we are in high school, you know, cause we're like 14, 15 and we just got here. We're trying to learn the language. We're trying to figure it out things in our own. Um, because like, there's no someone else gonna tell you it's like okay you have to go this way while having this rivalidades right and then like it and then you're getting to know more nationalities right mm -hmm. and you get to one point of like oh okay so every everybody under this umbrella of being latino and latina and latinx um we are completely different from each other you know it's like yeah we're under this umbrella but it's like our experience, like the experience of a South American is so different from Mexican. It's like this, the from the Caribbean is so different from Central America. So when it and it's, it's like, I came here to Wilmington, like I was telling you before recording and the Wilmington is like mostly like, oh, I was it like 80% Mexican. Like is, is that population here is like, like, yeah, it's very like Mexican like side and that was something that i was so completely new to me you know like because of course i have seen mexican culture and i lost you know all the things that they portray in like the media but nothing of like coming to real contact and how different like the language the way of you know I, of course experiences but i think the main one for me was the language because it's like oh yeah it's spanish but it's like at one point, it's not Spanish, you know, like it's Spanish from certain countries that does not translate the same way. And for example, like I'm very open of like me coming to a classroom and I was with my friend saying, oh, Mahe, to another Central American. And I didn't know that for other people, that was something bad, you know, and there's words that I did, like they would say to me and that for me, I, I thought it was bad. But I had to understand what their translation and their language was, you know. So it's like, 
this whole little thing of like, oh, you know, like kind of like going back and forth, back and forth. It's like, okay, this word does not mean that, you know, if someone calls you away, it's not an animal, you know, it's actually like saying like, hey, dude, you know, uh, so it was like a completely, and I'm, I'm sure you had those instances, like for me, like the most instances that I had was with languages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think as a poet and as a student of literature, I paid a lot of attention mm -hmm. to language and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, for me, we were assimilating. So mm -hmm. a lot of the, the whole situation for us was about learning English and, and, and speaking as much English as possible. Right. But then mm -hmm. I took Spanish to Spanish speakers with a whole array of, of students from different countries. And I had a really great teacher at Belmont High School mm -hmm. um, who happened to not be Latina. And that's a whole other story. Um, but mm -hmm. but I think, you know, when I got to UC Santa Cruz and I did my undergrad is when we really started to explore language and the importance mm -hmm. of language. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because Uh, if you say babosadas to a Mexican person, that's like the lowest, right? Like you're insulting them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I might say like, I have mm -hmm. babosadas. And it's like, for mm -hmm. me, it's like, ah, you know, stop messing around. Like, don't, mm -hmm. you know, stop it. Yeah. And, and, and for them, it was like, oh my God, that's like the hardest thing to swallow. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, or or if I say to somebody, oh, this is the general babosadas. And they're like, <gasps> you know, and it even happens yeah. among us. I mean, I yeah. actually have, have learned some Salvadoranisms. And when I mm -hmm. say them to people in Huate, they're like, oh, no, 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 no digas eso, eso es mala palabra, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of the language. Uh, uh, in 1999 or something like that, I was at a conference mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. we managed to go from Arizona. It was the first... Central American Culture and Literature Conference in the United States that we know of. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of us. I, I rented a car and we went to the Grand Canyon. So the, the funny mm -hmm. thing about it was that in that car was um, myself, a graduate student who was Salvadoreña, um, mm -hmm. who's, you know, uh, who had grown up in El Salvador, mm -hmm. a South American uh, graduate student. She was from, they were both from Maryland. Um, And, and, and then Historia from El Salvador. And we're mm -hmm. in a car, right? And we're driving to the Grand Canyon. So mm -hmm. that was like my moment. And I said to Carlos, Carlos is a historian. So I'm like, Carlos Cañas Dinarte, that's his full name. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Carlos, so where does this rivalry between Mexicans and Central Americans come from, right? Mm -hmm. I said, is it a product of, you know, like the independence or is it from the 80s? Like, what's the deal? Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's both. He said it's both from people crossing through and, you know, the way that folks got treated on the way north and also, you know, leftover from independence and, you know, what happened after mm -hmm. Mexican independence, right? If we want to call it independence, but that's a whole mm -hmm. other story. Mm -hmm. The funny thing about it is that Nilda, the, the Salvadoran graduate student who had grown up in El Salvador, says to both of us, I always thought that the rivalry was between Chapinas and Guanacos. And that was like yeah. a really kind of like a moment where I, I, I was like, it really depends mm -hmm. on where you are. You know, it mm -hmm. really depends on where you're coming from and your life experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, so that was, that was eye opening for me because it was like, Oh, you know, we, 
we it's uh, George Lipsitz, a professor mm -hmm. who is just retiring out of Santa Barbara in ethnic studies, talks about how identity is situational and relational. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yep. so it's funny because, you know, here I was thinking, oh, you know, all these Central American countries get along and and, you know, <laughs> what's the deal with the Mexican mm -hmm. uh, back then? We didn't even have the term hegemony, which a lot of folks are using. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 a lot of it has to do with conflict because you mm -hmm. come into contact and we're fighting over resources. Right. Yeah. But. Um, but you're right in terms of also those cultural miscommunications where mm -hmm. you say a certain word and that word resonates differently to somebody because mm -hmm. they're not used to hearing it and they get offended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. it's still happening to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, I feel like it's something that, you know, as you come in here, that's something that you don't you're not prepared to, you know, like. You're coming here, and then I said, like, Te vas a dar en la pared. Because you don't, like, how, in my case, like, how I was supposed to communicate, you know? Like, if, for me, that's the word that I use. And, yeah, people will call it, oh, yeah, you know, like, the, what's it called? The quote-unquote, like, formal Spanish, you know? Like, I know, like, Honduran Spanish is not formal, you know? Like, we have those colloquial palabras coloquiales and, and that's happened to every country and then but you know then you come to this you said you you had a spanish in high school and i had it too and then you come to this class and it's like okay that's not how it means for me and it's like it's it's a whole back and forward so i think that language of course plays a, a you know, a huge role. And then right now that you said about like the el conflicto, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, between like Mexicans and Salvadoran, I remember like coming here, people t used to tell me like, oh yeah, like it, like it was a huge thing between Mexicans and Salvadorans. And then you tell me it was actually between Chapines and, you know, like people actually thinking that it was between Chapines and, you know, and Salvadorans. And then in my head, like when I was growing up over there, there was always a huge thing of, you know, within the Central American uh countries um it was especially between honduras or costa rica or honduras in el salvador and with costa rica i never understood it um that's another story i never understood why but one of the things that um and then like i said you know it, it can be conflict it can be from different reasons but i don't know if you have come across from an honduras el salvador that was actually they call it like la guerra del fútbol so it mm -hmm. only lasted a hundred hours Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, like it happened from a soccer and then it went to like territorial thing. And it's like, for me, like I always like in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to have never had a civil war. You know, like that's not something that happened. Yeah, we suffer from a lot of corruption and a lot of other conflict, but we had never had one like, you know, like the other countries. So when I found out with that one, I was like, so for what it was, at the end. like in like it ends back to like. Oh, soccer, and then I went to territorial thing, and then like it was always like a fight between having access to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, yeah. and like when you come to realize that is, is is about like a whole little things. Like people will actually tell you that it's like because of soccer, but then other people are gonna tell you, oh no, it's because of actually like territory, and these are things that we don't know until we understand history. And like when we come to migration and then we come to these places where it's so diverse, all these little things add up 
and it's not that we have like a huge you know like fight over like who's better or no it's because at one point when as a central american you come to the spaces where the majority of latinx identity is centered on the mexican culture and that's amazing you know offer representation within that same umbrella we don't try because that does not represent half like most of us that identify as central america we want to have um what's it called the same representation and i feel like that's when people who think that latinx is like it's whole just just one group is where it gets misunderstood yeah i mean i think you know poetry art mm-hmm. culture um and a lot of the cultural work that we do is about mm-hmm. genuinely being seen and being heard right mm-hmm. and and i mean we were doing this when I went to college almost 30 years ago where it was like, you know, people would tell us you can be Chicano or you can be Chicana if you want to be. And we were like, no, you know, we, Mm -hmm. we appreciate it. We, we have a lot of respect for the work you've done, but we don't identify that way. That wasn't Mm -hmm. our experience. It was a totally different experience. And I think one of the things that I've talked about in conferences has to do with how um, so the civil rights movement basically mm-hmm. had what, once again, quoting George Lipsitz, refers to as ethnogenesis. So mm-hmm. you had the Black Power movement, you had the American Indian movement, you had the Asian American movement, which created this pan-ethnic label around like Asian American mm-hmm. or Asian American Pacific Islander. But Central Americans weren't here in such big numbers in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we didn't go through our own kind of like movement of mm-hmm. creating an identity. Like Chicano, Chicana mm-hmm. came out of the 60s when Mexican-Americans mm-hmm. decided they want to reclaim that, right? Um, so there's that in terms of like mm-hmm. our experiences. And now it's been about like, how do we create spaces so that people see us within within this whole umbrella term of Latinidad? Yeah which means different things in different spaces, right? So, for example, in L.A., Mm -hmm. which has a heavy Mexican and Chicana, Chicano population uh, and influence, it's very different. If you go to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. which is also, you know, has had a history, Mm -hmm. they had a lot more Nicaragüenses from a long time ago, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you go to Houston, you know, despite the fact that it's in the Southwest and it's Texas, um, they're... Their identity, if we want to call it Latinx or Latino, mm-hmm. Latina, is different than our identity here. And yeah. when you go to Chicago, when you go to New York, you're going to have mm-hmm. a lot more of the Bariqua Caribbean experience. Um, so a lot of times our identity ends up being worked out in relation to them, right? It's like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be Central American in L.A.? My, my mm-hmm. former... Um, you know, my friend who passed away, unfortunately, uh, Horacio Roque Ramirez, who was a professor in Santa Barbara, used to talk about how, mm-hmm. you know, you come to Mexican L.A. You don't come to mm-hmm. L.A., you come to Mexican L.A. and you have to negotiate that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you're describing. And I've always been really curious to see what the difference is. You know, like if you say the word tamal here, the first mm-hmm. thing that a lot of people will associate is Mexican tamales, right? But yeah. if you say tamal in Washington, D.C., the first thing they might associate mm-hmm. is 
tamales salvadoreños because the majority yeah. of the Latinos over there are Salvadoran. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating to me to see how we navigate that because ultimately mm-hmm. for me, it's also looking at, well, how do we build political power both for mm-hmm. our communities uh, mm-hmm. as Central Americans and within bigger, bigger groups. That, mm-hmm. That's, that's, I think the reason why you have pan-ethnic labels and they're not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. like a search for representation to really mm-hmm. feel seen and heard. And then how does that translate into actually having influence and power within a country that really doesn't know how to deal with us? Yeah. 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 And I think that you're completely right on it because it's like, yeah, we have all this sleep with, you know, you know, they're not completely perfect. And it's true why you said like, you know, about the different identities within, like we talk about, you know, here in the United States, I uh, wouldn't the cities that have like percentage of, you know, Latinos and how based on those percentages, depending on the nationality, what their culture there is different. You know, like it has been, I think, a couple of guests that I had had in this in this podcast. And then they have told me about the experience of Washington, D.C. That's something I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know there was a huge population of like Central Americans over there. I have been to Miami, so I know like there's a lot of like, you know, mixed over there from the Caribbean, from like Central Americans and like other South Americans. Um, and then we go to Chicago as another place and then, you know, San Francisco, which was for me was very surprising to see like uh, a lot of, you know, Nicaraguenses and Guatemalans over there. And then you come here and it's like, I tend to say that, you know, like identity, it gets formed, of course, for where you live around, because once you move to the spaces where this, for example, here in LA, where the majority of Latinos are Mexicans. You're going to come to a place and yeah, you may not feel like you fit just because that's not that identity you have been living for like the years that you live back in your country, but you become to adapt yourself. And part of that identity became yours because like, um, and for me, like now it's normal to see, to go outside and like a little dead or nos tacos and you know, the food, like I, I feel as I don't know, like as, as normal as it was b- back home, you know, I seeing a baleada stand in the mm-hmm. esquina for me to see a taco or like eating tacos or like what taco means. Right. Because like mm-hmm. I, I tried my first Mexican taco here and what tacos is in Honduras on taquitos fritos, no, yeah. what is tortilla con carne, you know? So like, mm-hmm. um, as well as how I, you know, the music that you listen, the, people you meet the way you interact with others becomes part of you but at the same time you know like you having that that other side of your i mean not saying the other side but those identities of central american to other nationality became like one and that's what defines the personal identity which is like the individual you yeah i i agree with you in terms of the fact that um we develop our identity based on our surroundings and Mm-hmm. Um, our experiences and who we interact with all the time, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would, I would, my father when he was alive, my father was a truck driver, as I was mentioning to you in the port. And there are a lot of Central American mm-hmm. port tra- truck drivers who came in the mm-hmm. '80s. And I remember one time um, I was driving and I asked him, like, uh, 
¿por dónde le doy? Like, which way should I mm -hmm. go? And he would say, dele derecho, which is the way that Mexicans would mm -hmm. say it. And yeah. I said to him, uh, ¿quiere decir recto? And he was like, ah, es que se le pega uno. You know, like, he, he acknowledged. <laughs> and he, you know, he hung out with, with, with Mexican folks. Yeah. And my son is mixed. My son is... Mm -hmm. uh, Guatemalan and Mexican or Chicano. I don't know what the heck he's going to end up calling himself at the end. But um, mm -hmm. but that's the other thing that we had a lot of intermarriage. And mm -hmm. the the I think that the generation that we where we came, we really resisted a lot of the um, type of. Almost assimilation into Mexican culture, my my friend Orlando who's from El Salvador, has a poem mm -hmm. where he says, you know, that his mom, who was married to a Mexican man by the time that he got mm -hmm. here, said to him, oh, no se dice volado, when you're talking about a, an item, right? In El Salvador, mm -hmm. they'll say, oh, pasame el volado. Just say, mm -hmm. like, that's give me that thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in his poem, he talks about, like, oh, no se dice volado, se dice cosa. Like how <laughs> you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're kind of learning the way that people mm -hmm. speak. Um, but I actually have another poem that talks about how I've also influenced people. You know, it's not mm -hmm. one way. Um, yeah. So so you'll have people say Puchica who are not Guatemalan mm -hmm. because they've hung out with me. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so it's just it's to me, it's really interesting and dynamic to see mm -hmm. how we're creating these human connections that are actually creating bonds between communities. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that ultimately that's kind of how we can start to deal with these conflicts and and mm -hmm. and really look at how we can still maintain our individual and community differences but at the same time look at how we can build some bridges towards yeah. you know improving our communities yeah yeah definitely and i think that you tied it down so well for my the next question that i have for you and i this is actually the work that you do uh for you know ideal bridges so your work and are actually just focused mostly on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and accessibility to leadership. But how important it is for businesses to be able to grow in those areas? I know, I mean, we understand, like, it's, it's very important, but, like, if you can give us, like, a breakdown, how important it is for businesses to actually look to those specific areas in order for, like, to grow. So it's, it's really interesting because... Um, you know, I've been doing, I, I have a master's in comparative ethnic studies from UC Berkeley, and I got into mm -hmm. doing um, this kind of work uh, through the government, the mm -hmm. county government in L.A. And I've been working with organizations and schools to to um, build up diversity and inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. This has been going on for over 15 years. And now, after Black Lives Matter, everybody's talking about diversity and inclusion, right? After mm -hmm. all these people came out and said, you know, what you all are doing as individuals and as organizations is is not right. Mm -hmm. You know, literally people, black people are getting killed because mm -hmm. of their the color of their skin. Um, so I'm glad that we have that now. I'm really mm -hmm. glad that. And, and I wish that George Floyd and all these other people didn't have to die for that to happen. But, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. we are there now. Um, and and a lot of times when we hear people talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, they talk about it in terms of like the business case. And yeah, mm -hmm. actually, when you have diverse groups and teams, you mm -hmm. tend to have better solutions. 
when you have diverse teams and uh, organizations, you tend to have better sales, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to look at it from a capitalistic model of like, mm -hmm. you make more money if you have diverse teams and sell to a diverse yeah. audience. But there's also like the question of justice, right? And, mm -hmm. and going back to the whole notion of representation, feeling seen, feeling heard. And I mm -hmm. think that that's what's really also important because um, that's, in my opinion, what's happening in terms of the folks who are out there on the streets who are fighting and not physically fighting, mm -hmm. but struggling for mm -hmm. uh, recognition, for people not to get killed, for looking the way they do, or for mm -hmm. loving whomever they love, right? Um, I think that th that's where it's beneficial for every part of our world to have a focus on inclusion and diversity. Um, I think that, you know, people talk about diversity and, and I happen to think that it's a positive thing, mm -hmm. but it's not enough. You know, it's not enough to just have diversity. We have to mm -hmm. feel included in order for us to participate fully in whatever organizations we're, we're from, mm -hmm. whatever communities we're in, uh, whether it be our job or be our school or, or somewhere else. And that's, that's the work that I've been doing since I was a teenager around Central Americans to really mm -hmm. feel like we're included and that we're seen and that we're heard throughout college. And now, you know, I do that with organizations, both um, internally and externally, not mm -hmm. only about Central Americans, but I do think that it's important for people to, to understand Central American experiences. I think that mm -hmm. our, our experiences are diverse in and of themselves. Oh, yeah. Our isthmus mm -hmm. is diverse. You know, mm -hmm. Black Central Americans are going to have a different experience than, you know, mm -hmm. Ladino, what we call Ladino in Guatemala or Mestizo mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that there's plenty of work to be done both. In, within our communities and outside of our communities mm -hmm. to improve our conditions, to improve, you know, the conditions of the mm -hmm. poor and, and, and those of us who have been marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. And I think that is very important. I mean, like you said, if you see it from a point of capitalism and seeing like from a business for sales and all that, I feel like inclusion and diversity is, of course, is a huge thing for me when it comes to inclusion and diversity like i i truly think like of course that's the way we should we should push for future generation yeah like you said people shouldn't be dying for us to have that you know like we shouldn't be even having that question right of people dying for for communities to have inclusion diversity within you know a workspace or media or any type of of you know, actually representation. But for me, I feel like you said it, it's true that we're moving towards that thing. But sometimes I personally feel that from some companies, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying all of them because I do know that some companies are actually doing it for, you know, for actually, you know, putting representation, inclusion towards justice. But some of them are just an image. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you're using a community and others uh, as just an image, but not your actual work for other community, that's when I'm like, you know, like that's not the type of representation and inclusion we're actually asking. Yeah. And um, some people call it performative, 
you know, that it's mm-hmm. a performance. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it's true that you have a lot of organizations, uh, companies that are mm-hmm. jumping on the bandwagon because they want to look good and they don't want to lose mm-hmm. customers. Right. No. I mean, ultimately, let's look at, for example, if you have a company that is all about diversity in the United States, but ends up exploiting kids in the third world, you know, the so-called mm-hmm. third world to yeah. make their stuff, then mm-hmm. are we really talking about equity, you know, or is it mm-hmm. just performative, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the big differences that we have. There are also people who are talking about what was referred to as JEDI, J-E-D-I, which is Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Um, and And... You know, for me, I ended up creating the that the acronym IDEAL because I think that that's what we work towards, right? Mm-hmm. We're working towards an ideal. We're working towards something that we want to see happen, maybe mm-hmm. not in our lifetime, but, you know, somewhere down the line. Mm-hmm. And we continue to work mm-hmm. towards it, right? Um, but I totally agree with you that it's really important to do the research and to mm-hmm. not get, you know, swept up by a company's performative diversity stuff. Um, I think that the other day I saw a meme or something, a post that said, you know, why did you decide to do your logo in a rainbow flag, right? Mm -hmm. Referring to the LGBTQ community, LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus, and, you know, underneath it said money. And that Mm -hmm. is is a really interesting critique of, Diversity for performance, you know, diversity yeah. just to look good, to keep, you know, your mm-hmm. customers, to keep your sales up. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I happen to think that that kind of work is not really helping communities out. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, pivoting to try to stay with the trends. And for those yeah. of us who've been doing this work for decades now, uh, the important thing is about seeing communities thrive and seeing communities mm-hmm. really feel seen really feel heard and really improving what the community conditions are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so true. And, you know, it's sad sometimes when you see companies and, you know, people do it for that, you know, because it's like, okay, you know, like people have the struggle. I mean, each community has their own struggles and they're different. And of course, even like you said, even us within the Latinx community is like the Central Americans want to experience the South Americans and I experience the Afro Latinas I don't want to experience the indigenous, you know, like I want to experience. Um because like I mean I cannot just put like for example in my case like as a mestiza from the same experience as someone who's indigenous. You know, like like the the whole struggle is completely different. And when when it's put on the disembarrel of like I'm helping others, it's like in it to social media, I think that I think that's the fact more. I think is social media more about the work that they do of how it's portrayed as we're doing the work rather than I'm actually I'm just putting it for you to see them. I care, but I actually don't care. And I, it's true what you said about those coming those especially companies. And it's very important, I think, to figure out like to actually focus. For example, and I'm just gonna give you an example. Example is like. The community for like, and a and at one point it's very hard to be honest. It's very hard to have oh, you know, be putting you know a little uh, uh, companies or other businesses for it. But 
is for example let's say for bananas you know like and this is something i had told you know like my family i think i have oh my god like over five years of not eating chiquita banana or del, or del monte and i i know people might think that it's crazy but for me it's like i know the damages that that has caused in my country you know in in Central America, in yeah, when you see it from a capitalistic point, it's like, well, it's giving them work in the region. But on my head, I'm like, but what type of work? You know, because at one point they're being exploited, and they're being, you know, like put all these chemicals that they have to use for the bananas and the men that have to, you know, no 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 pueden producir, you know, later have kids or um, things like that. So for me, it's a for me, it's like I cannot support a company like that. The same time goes with coffee. Like a lot of us who consume a lot of coffee don't look at it as that there's a lot of child work, labor, mm-hmm. child labor, I think, in Central America when it comes to that. And I'm 100%, I think, also in, in Colombia, which is, you know, where most of the coffee comes, gets imported here to the United States. So having those research of what is, you know, like, hashtag organic or what is you know like if it's into that CAFTA or like NAFTA or all that thing I think is it's a matter of us doing the research because if we want to say if we want to push like I said we might not see in our lifetime whatever work we do might not we're not gonna see it right now but hopefully for future generation is as it can be more easy to push for what we want to be, and like you said, ideal, because not everything can be perfect, sadly. Um, but it's like if we don't take our time to research and see like what we're consuming and what we're pushing for us or what we're buying is where that amount of let's say for example money, and we're talking a very capitalistic point, uh, money goes. Company is going to see oh well it. It brings money, so like it's okay to do it. Mm-hmm. In reality, it's not okay to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, boycotts have mm-hmm. been used for a long time in order to bring attention mm-hmm. and try to get companies to change their behavior, um, mm-hmm. their values, and well, you know, some of the ways that they that they mm-hmm. work with people. And and I admire a lot of the work that um, you know. I know Susan Garcia is doing some work around Chiquita. Yeah. Um, Suyapa Portillo just came out with a book recently about the resistance in Honduras. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's done a lot of work around, um, the, the, the bananeras, right? Which have mm-hmm. a long history in Central America and other places. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think it's a matter of kind of how we want to live our lives, right? And, yeah. and what values we have and why do we do what we do? So, mm-hmm. for example, I don't shop at Chick-fil-A. I don't buy food there right. because they're anti-LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and my son is watching me, right? Mm-hmm. My son sees the fact that I don't do that. And mm-hmm. then, and then he actually understands why. And then he's going to have to make mm-hmm. a choice about whether he wants to buy that or not. Mm-hmm. So, in, so it's in multiple ways. I totally agree with you that we need to research, uh, where mm-hmm. we're getting stuff. Um, if, if we can go fair trade, that's great, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and ultimately we're not going to be perfect. We can't get mm-hmm. everything the way that, that we might want mm-hmm. to, but it is making an impact if we're choosing mm-hmm. 
one company that has better business practices over others, right? And mm-hmm. and people know that, and the companies know that. Yeah. Um, so you know that's and it hits them where it hurts. It's the money, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they yeah. care about. But yeah. I think for us, it's about values and about the way we want to live our lives. And because, mm-hmm. as you were saying, there's a history behind why mm-hmm. you know. Central Americans are here in the first place, right? Yeah. The migrations were impacted by the coup in mm-hmm. Guatemala in 54, U.S. Mm-hmm. intervention in Central America in the 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. right? And the Bananera had a lot to do with that. You know, oh, yeah, it's like connecting the dots mm-hmm. is what a lot of folks don't, don't know. And that's why I really appreciate mm-hmm. a lot of the work that your generation is doing around that. Um, because, you know, you all are using social media to educate people and to bring mm-hmm. this history to light. And that's something that, you know, we tried to do when we didn't have social media. And I think we were somewhat successful, but you all are taking it to a whole other level. So thank you. No, you know, thank you. And I think that work like that you and other people have done throughout the decades, you know, you said maybe it wasn't social media there. That's what has inspired I'll say my generation, others to continue the work. And to continue pushing for that. And for, you know, in the case of Central Americans, I feel like at one point we felt like everything was just based on what that connotation of bad, you know, everything had a bad meaning of being Central American. And we just wanted to shift it and see like, well, yeah, we have those issues, but we want to educate you why and why is this resistant and why we doing this type of work and why it's important for you to understand this, why we're taking this type of decision into our life. Because if it didn't affect me personally, it affected my parents or my grandparents or my tatarabuelos, you know, like, and everything is going to come into a chain. And sadly, you know, like you said, it's, it's a lot of interventions, a lot of, you know, like it, 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 if if we talk, you know, like about La Bananeras and the fruit company, it's a lot of issues that when it comes in Guatemala and of course in the whole Central America. But I think that the that work that the fruit company did in Guatemala or it, I feel like until this day, you cannot, you know, what's it called? You cannot sanar, you know, what they did or just by a post. And I I'm so happy that you bring Susana Garcia I love Susie and it's something that I think she pushed so much of like, you know, yeah, maybe it's in history and this company might put it as it already passed. We already forgot it. And like we make a change, but no, the change that you made in a company is not the change that you made into our communities. And there are people, whole communities die, whole communities lost their land for it. And it's, it's us not not letting co- these companies who just went into our lands and do whatever they wanted to do for money monetary you know um things that they wanted to get it's for for us to say like we don't want you to forget that we are the sons and daughters of those who struggled back in the day and we don't want you to forget what you did yeah and i mean you know i don't want to be um, mm-hmm. naive and say that everything would be perfect had the no. intervention not happened. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, would we have had as many people killed in the Civil War if, mm-hmm. you know, the arms funding and support wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, if 
you know, Ottomans wouldn't have been overthrown because the United States um, had, you know, one of the Delta's brothers as uh, one of the high cabinet members. And then his mm -hmm. other brother was a board member in Chiquita Banana, United Fruit Company, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I wonder, and I know that a lot of folks came here directly because of the war. A lot right. of people came because mm -hmm. they were literally fleeing for their lives. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wonder, you know, and the privilege that I have as a Ladino mm -hmm. who, you know, was poor in, in Guatemala. We didn't have a lot. We didn't have any land or anything. Um, but I, I wonder what would it have been like if my parents would have had a good job and not had to move, right? What mm -hmm. would have happened in terms of my, um, in terms of my family system, my mm -hmm. cousins and aunts. I, I'll share something with you that's very personal, but my father was an alcoholic and he had stopped drinking before he came to the United States. He had already stopped drinking for months. It had been a long time. And then he came to the US and he was drinking uh, when my mother got here a few months after he came. And, you know, he was chased by immigration. He had to hide inside a trash can. He was mm -hmm. separated from his family. I mean, despite mm -hmm. the fact that he, you know, was an alcoholic, I knew that my father loved me. He may not have known how to love me, but he loved me. And mm -hmm. and I I think that, you know, the trauma of leaving your kids behind and everything that he went through contributed mm -hmm. to him drinking again. Um, so on the personal level, I wonder, you know, what if my dad mm -hmm. would have had a good job and we would have been able to live in Guatemala so we didn't need to migrate? What would have mm -hmm. happened, right? And mm -hmm. we'll never know, but, mm -hmm. you know, for people who have had to leave their country, um, there's always that question, right? Mm -hmm. I'm always looking at my cousins' lives, my cousins who are the same age, and I think about, like, would my life have been like theirs? You know, um, some of them have been successful and some of them haven't, right? And mm -hmm. and it, it really does pique my curiosity to think about, well, what would have happened if I wouldn't have come here? And I'm mm -hmm. grateful for everything that my parents did, all the sacrifices that they did, but I am really curious and we'll never know the answer, but mm -hmm. the forces that... Forced us to move, uh, mm -hmm. and forced so many people to leave. Um, were not invisible, you know. <laughs> they were mm -hmm. they were literally economic and military interventions mm -hmm. that forced mm -hmm. our countries to go through some of the darkest periods in their history. Yeah. And the other thing I want to mention is resilience, right? Mm -hmm. From Central American women. And men, indigenous people, black people are so resilient. That's one of the things that I also have learned and that I think we have to highlight as well. You know, yeah. we're not victims. We're not, mm -hmm. we may have been targeted. We may have been obviously hurt and, and not had the best situation, but we have contributed a lot to this country, to this, to the local communities, to the United States. Mm -hmm. to our to our communities back home because we're yeah. helping to prop up entire mm -hmm. you know economies over there yeah um and that's mm -hmm. one of the things that i think is really important for us is to remember the resilience that people mm -hmm. have shown 
whether we had a, a civil war or not, you know, like mm-hmm. Honduras had its own issues in terms of mm-hmm. military occupation because the yeah. United States was basically using it as a base, you know? Well, yeah. Um, and it still is. <laughs> yeah. <this> yeah. Day. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's true. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, like to remember that I think is, is good for us because, um, so like you said, sometimes we, we just focus on like, Oh, we went through this and this and that, but like how we come up from those instances is like what we need to highlight. And, you know, I really appreciate you focusing and even wondering. I think la curiosidad is, is siempre buena because as if you have been curious of what would have happened, I, you know, I had those things like, you know, uh, you know, um, I came here because of the divorce of my parents, but if you add something else, it's because my mom lost almost all her job after el, el golpe de estado. And that's, you know, it, it wasn't a civil war, but I, for me, it was the closest to be compared and to be fear, have fear if you don't know what was going to happen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just very thankful for your conversation and then to hear your experience of migration and always tighten it to how diverse identity and inclusive and how, you know, the struggles in, in this, in the, in this case of, you know, Central America have brought us to come to here for you to start the job that you do and sorry, the work that you do uh, to push for diversity, to push for inclusion and for seeing others generation, you know, like the generation now are taking it to like the, to social media and be like, okay, we're going to continue the same work that you and the scholars have been doing through years, you know, but now we're just going to make it more in the social media era, just because I feel like that's, personally me, I, that's where I learned the most. I learned for so many people that share their stories and share their point of views on social media. And I think that social media have brought a huge platform for not only history, but at the same time for education and news, because without social media, we wouldn't have like as quick as the news that we have from back home and other places. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And actually I was an academic I and mean, I actually teach mm-hmm. um, community college and I was on track to become a, a PhD and, mm. and, you know, was looking at going into the academic track and I have a lot of respect for my friends who are academics. I mean, you know, Ana Patricia Rodriguez was one of my graduate mm-hmm. student instructors when I was an undergrad. You know, Lacey Abrego, uh, you know, Oriel Maria Siu, uh, Mario Escobar. Like, there's such mm-hmm. a, a plethora now of, of mm-hmm. you know, professors and academics who are actually fighting within academia because that's also a battlefront mm-hmm. that yeah. people are really having to go through. You know, Arturo Arias kind of led the way for a lot of us as Guatemalans and Central Americans as well. Um, and I think that the work that they're doing is is really incredible. And mm-hmm. and then how do we bridge that? How do we create the connection with the folks who aren't in academia, right? And how do we mm-hmm. create the connection between that and organizations? Um, how do we bring the information that is being brought out, the research, the brilliant stuff, and how do we actually get it out to, to the masses, to the people who... Mm-hmm may not be at the universities so that they can learn. And I think that that's one of the things that you all are doing really well around social media and, and, and the education that's happening 
Now, it's fascinating for me to see TikTok videos about like mental health mm-hmm. or you know oh, yeah. imperialism or you know all mm-hmm. these things that that mm-hmm. we used to go to college for and take classes about, right? And mm-hmm. it's like you're taking like a little mini course. So, so yeah. in that sense, it's it's great. Um, the one thing that I do want to kind of explore a little bit more uh, is is the whole concept of migration. And mm-hmm. uh, my friend who's uh, a Chi and, and produces the show Contact Ancestral for KPFK here in L.A. Uh, likes to talk about that we, we, we don't migrate. Not everybody migrates. A lot of us are displaced. You oh, know? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think that that's a very important um, distinction because, yeah, you know, when you think about and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that the work around the language of migration has happened. So going from immigrant to migrant is is mm-hmm. key because, you know, our peoples used to go up and down from south to mm-hmm. north and north to south before yeah. there were even all these borders, right? So yeah. so so that migration is is important to talk about. And, you know, it's also important to talk about the forces that expel people from their home countries or their home communities mm-hmm. and that displace them, right? And so that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm really also looking at um, and, and, and keeping in mind that he uses the language of displacement, because mm-hmm. I think that for us, that's something that we have to also continue to talk about, that we don't mm-hmm. come here for vacation, you know, that no. we don't come here out of necessity, that we come here out of necessity, not mm-hmm. out of, you know, a whim because we want to go somewhere else. I mean, some people yeah. do, but in mass, in the majority of us, come here out of necessity. Come here looking out for jobs. Necessity. Come here seeking asylum, seeking refuge, mm-hmm. because you know things that have happened in our home countries have basically forced us to leave or expelled us. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I, I mean, the the work that's being done around trans migrants from Honduras is incredible. Yeah, and. You know, the, the resilience that those folks are showing is also incredible. So that's one yeah. of the things that I also like to 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 talk about. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. And I, I feel like it's true how we should continue having this type of conversation about migration, about identity, about all this type of and looking very close about the language we use. How we were at the beginning saying like, you know, like how we get confused sometimes when we migrate here and like the we get yeah um we, the words that we use in another country are different at the same time while we're trying to explain and like educate others and have these issues out there focus on the language because it's it's true like you know i maybe i was you know like my family was you know decided to migrate for you know better life or you know i mean everybody is looking for the same thing but there's some who are like forcibly being like displaced from the land and it's like it's so it's the same action of moving but as the meaning is different because maybe i had a privilege the other person didn't you know and i think that also highlighting how privilege uh comes into place when they wouldn't migration because within our communities we sometimes take aside the racism that is within our communities mm-hmm. yeah yeah i totally agree and I think that one of the things that I would also argue is that when it comes to gender, a lot of times mm-hmm. women leave because of the misogyny, sexism that exists, right? So 
I mean, mm-hmm. you were describing that you're, you left because your mother didn't have any job opportunities. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a feeling that her gender had a lot to do with that. I have yeah. a feeling that if your mother would have had job opportunities, she might have thought twice about whether she wanted to come here or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I, I appreciate the fact that you're acknowledging privilege. And at the same time, I think it's important for us to look at how we're not only displaced or expelled mm-hmm. by military forces, we're also displaced and disp- and expelled by economic forces and, yeah. you know, sexism and racism mm-hmm. and homophobia mm-hmm. and transphobia and all these yeah. other things that, you know, unfortunately, our communities and our countries are also dealing with. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I feel like I can talk so much with you. <laughs> it was such a good conversation, but I really appreciate your time. I feel like if again, you can come here in the show. We can have a more extended conversation because I really appreciate all this point of view that you have shared from the beginning, you know, from your poem, you know, the all the explanation of identity, diversity, how migration and how coming to like the conversation until, you know, um, the work that you do and the work that many others are doing. I really appreciate that. Do you want to share anything before we close? Do you want to share a, a poem? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share oh. a couple of things. Um, last year during the lockdown if we want to call it that mm-hmm. or when we were you know at home um mm-hmm. i started doing these virtual poetry readings and uh, oh. we started calling it the poetic pandemic so mm-hmm. we literally would do virtual readings and it came the idea for me came out of a reading that i'm going to do in september which is i've always wanted to do a reading with uh guatemaltecos and guatemaltecas from the margins with people raised here and so on September 11th, we're going to do that reading with people from oh, Latin and people from here. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, that project is is currently being developed with a committee, uh, mostly women, but um, you know I'm I'm involved with it as well from both Latin and and the United States. And so as a result of these readings, we've done multi-ethnic readings. We've done readings with Central Americans raised in the United States or living in the United States in Spanish. Um, we actually ended up starting a, an Instagram called Flowidarity, like flow and solidarity combined. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's uh, where you can find a lot of the work that we've been doing in terms of poetry readings that have to do with solidarity and, mm-hmm. and really standing up for each other. Um, it's in my YouTube channel. Some of some of that stuff, both my poetry mm-hmm. and some of the poetry events that we put on, mm-hmm. are in my YouTube channel, which is under G as in Gustavo, and then Mang as in M E I N G. And I actually just created a Bitly that says VozTube, like YouTube, but mm-hmm. Voz. Um, mm-hmm. So so you, people can find it there. And on June twenty sixth, yes, June twenty sixth, Saturday, June twenty sixth. From five to seven, we're going to do one that is going to be called Flowidarity with the Displaced. So mm-hmm. we're assembling a group of um, different people who are immigrants, in quotes, mm-hmm. uh, from different ethnicities and different parts of the world. And we're going to talk about, like, what does it mean to be displaced or to be a migrant mm-hmm. or to be an immigrant uh, through poetry? And so okay. that's going to be from five to seven. Uh, there's also a Floridarity page uh, on Facebook, and, and people can find it using my full name, Gustavo Vasquez. Mm-hmm. So that's the one announcement that I want to make. And I actually 
was thinking about reading another quick poem um, that has to do with this. Uh, and I, it's, I just wrote it recently, so it's in rough draft. Um, and it has something to do with, uh, you know, what we've been talking about. So it says, my ancestors didn't simply migrate. They moved as they needed to. My abuelas went from both ends of the home country to Guatemala City, La Capital, the capital, in order to survive, in order to make a better living, one trying to keep her marriage together, even if she had to leave her kids, the other one running from an abusive husband to become a sirvienta, work her chubby fingers to the bone in order to buy some land. They both moved in order to make a home, put a roof over my aunt's and uncle's heads. My parents didn't migrate. They were expelled, displaced from my grandmother's homes, looking for a place to call their own, looking for a land where they could live, looking for a home where they could just be. I did not migrate. I was brought to the U.S., unceded Tongva territory, to be more specific, sent for by my mother via a coyota who specialized in bringing kids from Central America during our own 1982 mini caravans. It's not that I'm ungrateful. I just want to clarify that I was brought at eight years old. And even though my maternal grandmother asked me not to leave, her past behavior told me that she really wanted what she really wanted was the dollars that my mother sent to take care of me because hurt people hurt people. However, healing people, healing people is what we should try to be. And that's where I left it. It's I really haven't finished nice. it yet. <laughs> yeah, but it's really nice. Thank you again for sharing. And if you can send me actually the links, I'll put them down below. I'll tag them in the in the notes for the episode and then the YouTube channel as well. And you know, I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time to come to share both poems and I appreciate the time and the work that you're doing and I cannot wait to go is is the is the event in person the one for September, or is no? That one's going to be virtual because we're going to have people oh, okay. from Latin okay. and people from here. So oh, okay, okay. So okay. it's going to be it's going to be virtual. Um, okay. Oh, uh, and we'll record it and we'll put it on YouTube. But we're also going to um, try to do a Facebook Live or okay. YouTube Live. So okay, yeah, okay. we're we're shooting yeah. to have thirteen poets. Um, with gender balance and LGBTQ representation, different ethnicities uh, out of Wate, as well mm -hmm. as here, and uh, you know, we're yeah, we're yeah. looking forward to it. And we <laughs> might even do another um, Central American uh, in the U.S. poetry reading the day before if, if we okay. have the energy to okay. do it. So okay, yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, just some of the information and like the listeners and viewers know that I tag everything downstairs. So like if they want to go follow you, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all the social media that way they can continue and follow your work. And yeah, just send me the, the links and I'll link them down below. <laughs> thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate no, thank it. You. No, thank you. Thank you for everything. If you'd like to support this podcast and my work, you can donate through our website or become a patron. Don't forget to check our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. 
follow us on Instagram at Symptom Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Symptom Voices Pod. Like and follow our Facebook page where you can join the Central American Voices Facebook group. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel where we're going to continue sharing these episodes as a video format. But don't forget to come back for our next episode.